and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Seidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, February 21st, 2021. It's my brother's birthday. Happy birthday. He turned 30 years old. What if he has friends who Happy are listening birthday. who don't know he's turning 30? Well, they know now. <laughs> they can mark their calendar to, to get it right next year. Well, sometimes people know it's their birthday, but not how old they turn. Well, I just told all, I just spilled all the beans. Yep. Little Steidel turned 30. Not little anymore. Mm-hmm. So what are we talking about today, Brendan? Today, I'm talking about the three shows that I covered. I covered this week. I covered Fox News Sunday, and I covered Meet the Press. And I will be talking about a variety of things from Texas and what is what has occurred there to school openings, to various political issues. There's lots of things I will be covering. Interesting. We'll see if I can do it under an hour. Well, less than that, because I also have to talk about my shows. What are are the shows you covered? (laughs) So I watched State of the Union and Face the Nation. And I will be talking a little bit about Texas, but a lot about covid specifically how it started and where it's going around, specifically around the vaccine distribution. And I'm going to talk a little bit about COVID relief as well. All right, but let's begin then at quality questionable, Naomi. Let's start with something questionable. So my questionable moment was something I heard on State of the Union when Dana Bash, new co-host of the show, official co-host, talked to Dr. Fauci. Now, My frustration was kind of tied to something I talked to you about last week, Brendan, around what is safe for people who have been vaccinated. And we got some tweets, we got some messages about that comment. And I've kind of been really thinking about it. Somebody kind of messaged us and said, part of science is observation, right? That we can't be expecting scientists to tell us exactly what we know about COVID, what we know about the vaccine, kind of like in definitive answers, which I think is a really fair point. And if my comments last week implied that, my bad. But I do think there's something to be said to expect better explanations as to what we know, what we don't know, when we might know more. Yes. Right? And that grayness needs to be kind of outlined for people so people have a better understanding of the risk and what mitigations they might have to make and what to look forward to. So my questionable moment is the answer that Dr. Fauci gave Dana Bash when she asked about what people can do if they have been vaccinated. So there is some confusion about what that actually means for a person's lifestyle uh, after they are vaccinated. I'll give you an example. My parents have already gotten their second dose. They're fully vaccinated. Does that mean it's okay for them to spend time with their grandchildren who obviously have not been vaccinated? What's your recommendation? 
You know, I, I'm not going to make a recommendation now except to say that these are things that we really do. I mean, literally every day, Tano, we look at that. We look at the data. We look at what's evolving about how many people are getting vaccinated. And there will be recommendations coming out. I don't want to be making a recommendation now on public TV. I, we want to sit down with the team, take a look at that. And you will be seeing relaxation of some of the stringencies as more and more people well, get vaccinated. Well, let me I just, promise you that, but I don't want to really do it right now. Well, just to uh, make it personal, I mean, you've been very open about the fact that you've been skipping holidays with your family. You're fully vaccinated. Are you seeing right. your family? Uh, right now, not yet. Not yet. I mean, I would look forward to it within a reasonable period of time as the rest of my family gets vaccinated. I mean, obviously, I'm with my wife every day. Right. She has gotten her first dose, will soon get her second dose. But my children, when they get vaccinated, obviously, I look forward to seeing them. And I'm sure that by that time, recommendations will come out to guide us in a more precise way. What an outstanding question. This is the question that all these hosts I've been waiting for them to ask. Dana Bash asks it and makes it personal. And then we hear from Fauci where he says, ah, I don't want to make a recommendation. Well, that's your job. I'm sorry. You're in the job to make recommendations to help people know because you know better than us. Right. And then, yeah, I thought her. And, and you could you could. Sorry, your recommenda recommendation could simply be to reinforce the current guidelines. That could be a recommendation until you have newer answers. But he just kind of, he won't go on either side of it. Yeah, so there's a few things here that I want to kind of review. So one excellent question. It's very specific. She kind of uses, like, it's very clear. Like, some people are vaccinated, some people aren't. What is the risk of them getting together? Making it personal in that follow-up is 100% excellent. What I found a little frustrating is she, when she's like, we're going to be making, we're going to be relaxing guidelines soon. When is soon? Right. Is soon next week? Is soon June? Is soon like August? Like we've been in this for literally a year now. I mean, almost COVID's been around we the globe a for year. a year. We can say a year. You know, and like. What is soon? Like, does it mean when X amount of people or X percentage of people have been vaccinated? Like, what is the number, the the parameters that will help public health officials be able to make these recommendations, right? Yes. Like, they're clearly coming, but we have zero context as to the conditions in which those recommendations will come. And that's an issue. Like, that's the part that's my frustration, right? I am not surprised. And that kind of bring, brings me back to my comment at the start of my questionable and talking about last week. Like, I understand that, like, science is gray and science is observation and we're not going to have every answer. But you have to explain why we don't. And you have to give people understanding and tools to get them to the point where they will wait for the answer. And exactly. this, is, this is not it. Yes, this is not encouraging people to wait for the answer. Because to do that, you have to reinforce the current guidelines. If you're saying, don't do anything different, simply follow the current guidelines. I know it's difficult to do that. But my recommendation and what I'm doing with my family is as follows. That is the way to do it. Because yes, science might take a while to have those clear answers, but people need to know what to do right now. Right. And he knows better than they know because he's the expert and he is the policy leader. Yeah. Brendan, what's your questionable moment? My questionable moment is something having to do 
with um, a little a little fact I'm going to share with you all right now, and that is that there's a, a lot more discussion of Trump than there probably should be on the Sunday shows. Oh, interesting. So on Meet the Press this week, I only looked at my shows that I covered, but on Meet the Press this week, Trump, just the word Trump, the name Trump, was mentioned 36 times. Oh my goodness. The word Biden, 17. That's crazy. On Fox News Sunday, the word Trump was mentioned 17 times. The word Biden, 11. The Fox News Sunday also talking about Trump more. On this week, which included an interview with, it was the exclusive first time interview with Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki. Trump was mentioned 31 times, Biden 30. And, you know, Saki mentions her boss a lot when she's answering right. these questions. <laughs> and Trump didn't have any representative on, right? That's so... I did not get that vibe from Face the Nation and State of the Union. There's just way too much talk of Trump. And a good example of this is talk that came up in the panels of two of these shows about Trump's impending speech at CPAC. Take a listen to Meet the Press and then take a listen to this week. Christian Walker, what do you expect from former President Trump next week when he does his first speech? Is he going to be trying to project himself uh, as not just the leader of the Republican Party, but to actually say why Republicans should be in charge? Or is he going to be settling scores inside the GOP? All right, Margaret, before we go, we've heard now that Donald Trump is going to be giving his first speech at CPAC in Florida uh, a week from today. What, What do you expect from Trump and I mean, is Lindsey Graham right? Is he the leader of the party? So there they are asking about a speech that Donald Trump hasn't even given yet. You know how we had these conversations about how on the Sunday shows, they gave Trump more airtime than they should have because they let him call in and on... In the 2016 election. In the 2016 election. And then on... The cable news networks, they gave Donald Trump more airtime than they should have because they just broadcast his rallies endlessly. Well, here we are, 2021, after Donald Trump has left office, no longer in power, hasn't announced he's running for president again, has become a a social media pariah because he inspired an insurrection against the U.S., and yet still... They're talking not, they're not giving Trump airtime for what he's saying. They're giving him airtime for what he might say. He hasn't even said it yet. It's just outrageous. And then they're talking about him more than they're talking about the current president. And I want to give props in this questionable to, believe it or not, one voice in the crowd on the panel who called it out. Take a listen. I'm with Joe Biden. Four years of him enough. Let's focus on the American people. The best line of the uh, that see at his town hall was mm-hmm. exactly right. The country's had enough of this guy. And, and listen, and the ready country. You guys don't want to move on. Great, stay with him. And, and we got to move on. The media is addicted, Rob. The media is addicted. A hundred percent agree with the him. He's sitting down to Mark Lago with his no, mouth shut. And no, we're still talking about it. John Carl is addicted to Donald Trump. Joe Biden's making. Thank you all. We are we are out of time. We'll be right back. Don't call out my own media strategy. No. So Chris Christie, believe it or not, I mean, he said it as it is, right? The media is addicted to Donald Trump. John Carl is addicted to Donald Trump. And Christie spelled it out. Christie said, and it was a little hard to hear there in the crosstalk. I have it here in the transcript. Christie said, 
he, Donald Trump, is sitting down in Mar-a-Lago with his mouth shut. And that's exactly right. He hasn't even said anything yet. So that's my questionable. Stop it with the Trump addiction. Just stop it. Naomi, what's your quality moment? (laughs) My quality moment is another moment from the same interview with Dr. Fauci with Dana Bash. So taking it back to COVID. And it was a what I thought an almost completely thorough explanation as to why the U.S. is not going to be going the route that some countries are, which is prioritizing one vaccine dose to as many people as possible and sticking with the current plan of vaccinating two doses. New research I know you've seen from Israel and Canada suggests that even one shot of the Pfizer vaccine can provide 85 to 90 percent protection. And The UK is delaying some of its second doses up to 12 weeks. Can you explain to Americans why the U.S. isn't adjusting its strategy when millions of them who want a vaccine, number one, can't get one? The Pfizer situation where they gave a vaccine and after a period of time at 15 to 28 days, they had good protection. What we don't know, and this is the risky business about it, we don't know how durable that effect is going to be. We know for sure that when you give a prime with the Pfizer, followed by a boost 21 days later, that you get a 94 to 95% efficacy. And the difference between the level of antibodies after one dose versus two doses is about tenfold higher. And that is really important because when you have that high a degree comparable to the single dose alone, That's the cushion that you would like to have when you get a variant that isn't as well protected against by the antibodies induced by the vaccine, but you have enough level to be able to prevent at least severe disease. So the science points directly towards continuing with what we know about from the clinical trial. Now, we always keep an open mind to continue to look at data and make decisions based on the evidence and the data. Very quickly, the situation with the UK, a bit different because they're talking about an entirely different vaccine platform. I've heard a lot of comments from friends, a lot of questions from friends, from other people about why isn't the US prioritizing one dose for as many people as possible? And my answer has always been the scientists, the public health officials in this country are not recommending this. And I don't... I would be very surprised if the Biden administration went that route without the full support of the CDC and the COVID task force, which my impression has been they're not interested in going this way, mainly because that's not what they're that's not what the clinical trials studied. And that's not what the data has proven. Right. They can't say it's not going to be successful, but they don't have that for sure. And. And so I've kind of always taken like a more precautionary, like, well, we just don't know. We don't know that. We don't know if it's safer or whatever. And I just thought this was a really thorough explanation by Fauci explaining that, right? And explaining also that the UK is using a completely different vaccine kind of, and that the vaccine has a completely different architecture. And to compare one with the other is just apples and oranges. a different mechanism, yeah. Exactly. 
what he doesn't answer is what's happening in, in Israel and in Canada and other places that are considering one dose with the mRNA. But even still, I thought it was an important clarifying question that I thought Fauci actually did a decent job in answering. Yeah, and I think there are other things that he could say in the future to this as well. I mean, we know, for example, that this mRNA vaccine, which is highly effective and super safe, is also kind of the first approved mRNA vaccine ever. So they are kind of unsure about whether it would have that durable protection beyond one month or two months if you months if you only have a single dose. They just there's no other example out there that would show it and they didn't study that in the trials. So right. they're just kind of they don't know. The data is not there. And then the other side I think they he could say is and he's kind of suggests it but he doesn't really paint a full picture is like the the idea that a variant could come through and if our population had only received the one right. dose then our population might be totally susceptible or very susceptible to this new variant. And as we've seen more variants spin up, it's been really, I think, clear to them that they really want to stick with what they know works. Exactly. The risk is almost too high to do otherwise. Right. Brendan, what's your quality moment? So my quality moment is also related to Dr. Fauci. I mean, he was everywhere. But for me, the quality was what Chuck Todd asked. And they were in a conversation about opening schools and the issue of teachers going to school and whether they needed to be vaccinated or not vaccinated, whether teachers should feel safe going to school and schools restarting. And there was a much longer discussion on this. But at one point, Chuck Todd simply asked this question. Well, you understand why there's just this it has caused this consternation, right? The scientists say, hey, look, it is relatively safe. Obviously, a teacher sits there and says, yeah, but I'm still taking risk. Um, and I know you don't want to wade into the politics right. of this, but this is where would you feel comfortable going into a classroom and teaching? Um, would I feel comfortable? Um, you know, it's tough because I've not been in that situation. I could tell you I have a daughter who I adore who is actually doing just that right now as we speak in a city far from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand the concern that people have. And that's the reason why we say, Chuck, you know, when you ask a question, a specific question, it's appropriate and it's understandable. But there are so many complicated issues, how the teachers feel, how the parents feel about the possibility of bringing infection back home. There are so many things there that you need to consider. The thing that we say And Chuck, I've been saying this for months and months, even anti-dating the CDC guidelines, is that the default position is that we should try to do everything we can to get the children back to school safely for the children and safely for the teachers and other educational personnel. And the CDC guidelines try to delineate the steps where you can do just that. So what a fantastic question by Chuck Todd, just simplifying all this and just saying, hey, would you teach? Would you go teach Dr. Fauci with what you know? It's kind of like reminds me of what we heard from Dana Bash, where she asked whether Dr. Fauci would or was seeing his family, right? His extended family. But it just it's a question that cut through a lot of BS and got to the heart of the issue. Yeah. And I. I love these kind of would you do X because 
The thing is about this pandemic, it's all about risk tolerance and risk mitigation and the choices in which people are making those, right? And when everything is in absolutes, it's just like you're not taking consideration like the real life situations that people have, like millions of teachers who work in under or poorly ventilated schools, right? Like, yes, the kids are suffering that community, but how much money are those schools actually getting and when to improve that ventilation? Like all these factors need to be discussed at the same time, right? Rather than just saying like scientists think they can open and teachers don't want to. Like it's there's always more than that. And when you personalize it, that I feel like that's where the nuance really comes out. Yeah. And it tells us it tells us a little something about Fauci and something about the situation as well. Yeah. Yeah, true. I'd be very curious to hear well, I kind of just want to watch Meet the Press maybe tomorrow because I'm really <laughs> interested in how that conversation played out. But I'm hearing more angles about schools reopening and kind of the outcomes of students. But I haven't been hearing a lot around like school infrastructure and been kind of surprised about that. So Yeah, absolutely. So Naomi, do you want to talk about politics first or do you want to talk about your moment in journalism first? I think I want to talk about journalism. Great. That's what I wanted to cover too. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about Face the Nation and Margaret Brennan. And a little something that we have mentioned, but I thought was very, very clear in today's episode. And that's that Margaret Brennan has such, and maybe, you know, I would also add Mary Hager and the whole kind of production team at Face the Nation has a really great knack at seeing the bigger story and seeing where, what the conversation's gonna be in three weeks, six weeks, three months from now. And they start planting those seeds. And like their interviews are the ones that people refer to, or they're kind of the initiation for really important conversations. And I really saw that today front and center in in several aspects. But so one of the main interviews that were highlighted today was an interview that Margaret Brennan had with Matthew Pottinger. He was the deputy national security advisor during the Trump administration. He was one of the first people who kind of started noticing the COVID-19 outbreak in China. He kind of has a very interesting background in that he was a Wall Street Journal reporter in China during SARS. And so he had a lot of contacts, one personal experience of what that outbreak was like, but also personal contacts with Chinese doctors and stuff like that. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was super, super interesting. But like how he ended up doing what he did after that, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, sounds like he has an interesting career. But (laughs) but what impressed me about this interview with Matthew Pottinger is that it was both a where did we get it wrong? Like, what were the big moments that surprised you? Like, uh, almost like an exit interview. Yes. Yes, it really was like an exit interview. Now that you mentioned it. Yeah, it was kind of looking back. How did we get this wrong? And there were some real kind of eye popping moments for me. The first being how the Chinese government kept their own public health officials in the dark. Was the administration being intentionally misled here or was it a problem uh, in terms of how our own public health officials consumed information? We were a little bit too credulous. We were, we were waiting to be fed information uh, when the nature of that regime uh, meant that we were not gonna get that information. They, they had a strong incentive 
to mislead uh, their own public and the rest of the world uh, about the nature of this virus. So the World Health Organization ha has said that COVID-19 was circulating in Wuhan, China uh, in late 2019. Why didn't U.S. health officials or U.S. intelligence know earlier about this threat? Well, U.S. intelligence wasn't focused on these kinds of questions. They, they, they were relying on the CDC. The problem was the Chinese Communist Party did not turn to their CDC to deal with this crisis. They turned to their military. And our CDC did not have relations uh, established with the Chinese military. So the director of the Chinese CDC, based on public reporting, didn't know either. I mean, the Chinese CDC director did not know that this thing was circulating until the last day of December which is incredible when you think about that. So it looks like the Chinese CDC to some extent was cut out because the Chinese Communist Party turned to its military to try to cover this thing up, to try to contain it until it was too late. But why did they do that? Like, why would they turn to their military? They for being the like Chinese that? Communist yeah. Party. Did, did, did she get an answer to that? Because that's really eye-opening. No, but they didn't show the full interview. So she recommends checking out the Facing Forward podcast for kind of like Dr. Burks a few weeks ago, yeah. where they use just kind of a part of the interview. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. So I thought that was really fascinating information and kind of really changes how you look at January 2020. And this is something like these lookbacks are are going to be happening more and more. And yeah. I think Margaret Brennan is being really smart and getting a, like being a part of this conversation right from the start. Like a good exit interview, you don't just look back. You say, do you have any recommendations for whoever would replace you? Or what would you change? Or, you know, yeah. always having <laughs> those recommendations on point. And she asks that about what we could be doing better, specifically within the CDC. And Matthew Pottinger has some very clear recommendations as to some institutional reforms that could really change things in the future. I've heard you on all the criticisms of the CDC and you've highlighted some really specific areas for them to improve. My view is that they should establish a new super body for pandemic uh, preparedness and response within the CDC, probably move it from Atlanta uh, into Washington, D.C., so that, that that person who's in charge of that can also be uh, um, attached to the White House. So this is your prime reform to the CDC to prevent us from being sucker punched the next well, time. That's that's one of them. The other one would be to create a centers for lessons learned, uh, like like I like the military uh, has for each of its service branches. You have a quasi independent body of investigators who can go in and talk to anybody and everybody, collect lessons learned in real time, and then report. It's important that the director of the CDC and the other senior leadership actually listen to those reports and implement the uh, the lessons learned, so that you've got a living organization that's learning. That is not, unfortunately, what the CDC is today. There's, so the, the final thing really about the CDC is cultural. Uh, the, the CDC has developed over the years, even though it's got great talent in there uh, and, and, and well-meaning people and a lot of expertise, it's developed an academic kind of mindset. When you say the CDC, are you talking about Director Redfield? Bob Redfield did the very best that he could with what he had. I'm talking about institutionally, in the, in the belly of this institution, uh, CDC was unwilling to, uh, uh, to partner with industrial labs to do 
tens of thousands of, of uh, sequences uh, uh, so, that, so that you could actually see where this thing was going. They wanted to do it internally. And, and I think the reason for that is they want the data themselves so that they can publish. There's a very powerful incentive within CDC culture to partner with academic institutions rather than private institutions and, and to uh, collect data, uh, submit for peer review articles that uh, burnish your credentials. Th that's a very slow process. That's not uh, the, the kind of incentive you want uh, for dealing with a fast moving pandemic. So I thought those were very, like that's good constructive advice, right? Oh. Making, having kind of a top public health official in Washington to be kind of quickly able to work with the White House as needed and really kind of calling out the fact that the way academic research is done, collected and published is not how you solve a pandemic. Right. Or or other issues that the CDC is is working on when it's a fast moving thing. Right. And I that mean, the it, CDC itself is kind of a slower right. paced agency and it did it could not keep up with the pace of the pandemic. And maybe that makes sense when you're doing studies about how one particular type of nicotine affects the lungs. Right, in, you exactly. Know, in a, in a, and like the general course of their work, it's probably fine. Yeah, and a cancer patient, but this is very, very different. Right. And it requires a different set of, of thinking. I love this type of interview. I also love his idea of the Lessons Learned Center. I am all about lessons learned and living organizations. So this is, this is exactly the type of conversation that we would hope is taking place within the government. But one way to make sure it does is to do it publicly in a forum like this. And I think so much of the who messed up is kind of very, it's like these quick finger wagging. Right. Oh, so you're interviews. saying it's You're uh, saying so and so, so and so messed up. But not, I'm not even dragging Margaret Brennan. I'm saying in general, if you think back to so many interviews with Chuck Todd and Jake Tapper, it's like, how did you get it wrong? Or how are we here? Is... Isn't it, uh, I don't know, not deplorable, but like, what does it mean that we have reached 200,000 deaths? And, you know, like they use these milestones to kind of finger wag as opposed to like, what are we actually freaking learning and what are we doing differently now? And again, we've said this over and over again. Margaret Brennan likes a functional government. Yeah. She's encouraging people to demand more. And I'm here for it. Yeah. Well, that's this is exactly the type of conversation that was missing in relation to Texas, which I will get to at some point in our conversation today. But, Brendan, it sounds like you have something else you want to say about journalism. Yes, this is not related necessarily to what happened in Texas. This is a different point, but it's a point about one technique that we see from the Sunday show hosts quite frequently and generally we're we're big fans of it. It's when they it's when a host asks a guest a question and they use a clip to paint a bigger picture. One of the hosts that I'm going to share with you, I thought did a great job at this. And another host, it just seemed, well, you be the judge. Take a listen to Jonathan Carl asking Jen Psaki, again, the White House press secretary about, I'll just say the gold standard. Okay, I, I want to turn uh, to a, another controversy that, that raged this week. Uh, Andrew Cuomo uh, under fire for um, allegedly not being transparent uh, and misleading uh, on, on, his, uh, on his, the number of nursing home deaths in New York. Uh, last spring, 
President Biden cited Andrew Cuomo as the gold standard uh, for leadership during the pandemic. Take a listen. Your governor of New York's done one hell of a job. He, I think he's, he's sort of the gold standard. So now we've seen uh, that Governor Cuomo has allegedly undercounted nursing home deaths, misled legislators in New York, and he called uh, uh, New York Assemblyman um, uh, Ron Kim uh, raising questions, um, uh, you know, ba basically um, uh, threatening to destroy him, I think was his actual words. So does President Biden still consider Andrew Cuomo the gold standard when it comes to leadership on the pandemic? Well, John, we work with Governor Cuomo just like we work with governors across the country. He's also chair of the NGA. So uh, he plays an important role uh, in ensuring that we're coordinating closely and getting assistance out to people of his state and to states across the country. All right, but Jen, my question was, does President Biden still believe that Andrew Cuomo is the gold standard, represents the gold standard on leadership during this pandemic? Just a yes or no. Does he well, still John, the, the, the president... The, pre the president, uh, well, it doesn't always have to be a yes or no answer, John. I think the president is focused on his goal, his objectives as president of the United States. He's going to continue to work with Governor Cuomo, just like he'll continue to work with governors across the country. And uh, I'm not here to give new labels or names uh, from the president. I'm here to, to communicate with you about what our focuses are and what his objectives are as president. Jen Psaki is like, you shall not crucify me upon a cross of gold. That's a reference to Williams Jennings Bryan. But Chumsaki does not need Jennings <laughs> Bryan, William Jennings Bryan lines. Seriously, though, this is ridiculous. What? Who cares? <laughs> That's the, yes, that is the most. That is the answer. <laughs> That's the reaction everyone should have in hearing that exchange. Who cares? This is such. This is the. This is. Literally, the example of a gotcha question. It's exactly that. Because it doesn't freaking matter. Clearly. It doesn't matter if Biden no longer thinks <laughs> Cuomo is the gold standard. Right. Right? We're not saying what Cuomo did doesn't matter. We're not right. saying. Oh, no, it very home. much matters. All that is like highly like yes. unethical and there should be investigations and there should be consequences Serious but to spend your time with the national press secretary about who joe biden is texting as his bestie like or, or things is the well of course i mean that was in the spring there's been so many other governors that have shown great leadership throughout this pandemic including someone the michigan governor that he considered nominating as his vice president so this is Gretchen so Whitmer yes this is so stupid and it's meaningless and if you're gonna ask it if you love this idea of the gold standard like <laughs> like John Carl apparently John does was like clearly proud of he's it clearly a libertarian he's all about the gold standard oh my gosh Brendan. I'm making all these fun gold standard uh, <laughs> references nobody understands no <laughs> if you know all the William Jennings Bryan's Easter eggs, please send us messages because Brendan will be delighted. It's a great speech, even if you disagree <laughs> with the subject matter. But that's very true. Even if you care about this, Jen Psaki isn't the right person to ask. Such a weird turn of phrase. It's almost like saying, you know, like you said, who does Joe Biden have on speed dial? It's like Jen Psaki doesn't know that. 
how would she know who Joe Biden thinks of as the gold standard? Does Jonathan Carl think that, that they're having conversations like that? <laughs> that Jen Psaki says, well, listen, Joe, Mr. President, you said back, you know, about the gold standard. Do you still think of him as the gold standard? Just in case I'm Can asked Can you imagine that. that coming up in oh, like a weird. briefing no. before a Sunday morning interview? The person to ask that to, the only person, if you're going to ask it, which again, it's kind of stupid. It was just but very stupid. the only person to ask is Joe Biden. He's the only one who would know. How unless, know? unless, I don't know, maybe Biden told Cuomo, you are no longer my gold standard. And then Carl <laughs> could have interviewed Andrew Cuomo and said, and, and Cuomo could like admit, right? Like, I'm no oh, longer Biden's gosh. gold standard. Okay, so this was a bad use of clips, right? right. And, and the fact that he had a follow up too. <laughs> Come on. Oh, yes, you're going to, you're going to really hold her feet Wait to a, the fire. Yeah. <laughs> so... Here's a good use of a critical clip of the Biden administration asked of a Biden official, but one that takes place on Fox News Sunday. This is Chris Wallace in conversation with none other than Anthony Fauci. President Biden came in saying that they were going to run things more smoothly, that they were going to follow the science. But in the last couple of weeks, there have been some garbled messages coming out of this administration, and I want to ask you about that. Last Sunday, on this program, the CDC director said that teachers do not have to have, it's preferable, but they do not have to have the vaccine in order for schools to reopen. But this week, we got a somewhat different message from Vice President Harris. Take a look, sir. Teachers should be a priority in terms of but vaccinations, but the states have the is it safe for them? Well, I think that we have to decide if we can put in place safe measures. The CDC has said they don't have to be vaccinated to go back to school. Of we think they should be a priority. priority. We think they should. We think they should be a priority. That sounds like Vice President Harris was following the teachers' unions, not the science. Mm. No, I, Chris, I mean, if you want to pause words, I was listening very carefully. What Vice President Harris said it should be a priority. She did not say it's a sine qua non that unless you get vaccinated, you cannot come into the school and teach. So what we're saying, and let me state it clearly, because I, I believe strongly that it is completely compatible with both with what Dr. Walensky said and what the vice president said, is that clearly we want to make the vaccination of teachers a high priority. They are within the essential personnel in society, and we want that priority to be high. What I have said, and I'll say it again today, it should not be a sine qua non. In other words, you cannot go into the school unless you're vaccinated. We're not saying that. We're saying we're doing whatever we can to protect the safety of the children and the teachers but it is not a requirement. It's a priority, but it's not a requirement for the teachers to get back into school. I, I think the only point I was making is she refused to say it's not a requirement when she was asked by Savannah several times. Let me ask you about another one. So here's a question about something that matters. And even if you say, well, it's a little too in the weeds, it's a little too, oh, well, you're not being consistent, but consistency matters here. When you're messaging about something related to schools opening and COVID, these are life and death conversations, and these are serious conversations for American families. And being clear about your public messaging 
matters. So you should hold officials like Fauci and other members of the administration accountable for that. So I thought this was perfectly appropriate and really well done. Naomi, what stood out to you in relation to politics this week? So when thinking about my politics segment, it I kind of went round and round and round. And I kept going back to the ability to make your case for a policy proposal, right? And when it's effective, when it's not, you know, what are the elected officials who have been on the shows that kind of have really stuck in my head about why something should pass or why it shouldn't? And what it occurred to me is you part of their job is to be persuasive. It is to be convincing. It is to be memorable, right? right? You want people, you're trying to add people to, you're trying to add support. Yes. And one of the ways you do that is by... Rhyming. (laughs) (laughs) No, go ahead. Sorry. You really got William Jennings Bryan (laughs) on the mind. But the way you do that is by demonstrating, by painting a picture that the other side is wrong. Mm -hmm. Right? And that you are right. And there were two interviews on State of the Union. One side did this well and one side did not. So the first example I want to show is... A moment when Dana Bash talked to Governor Asa Hutchinson. He is a Republican governor from the state of Arkansas. And he does not think, I mean, he thinks the COVID relief bill is bloated. Let's hear his explanation about what should be done. So the House of Representatives is set to vote on President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package this week. Could you use the help? And do you think Arkansas representatives in Washington should vote yes? Well, first of all, uh, I think the president has missed an opportunity to have bipartisan support for this bill. I don't think it's the right strategy to ram that through on a party line vote. Uh, I think everybody recognizes the urgent need for a stimulus package uh, for relief to the states. Uh, That's what the governors support. But it's a fair debate as to Mm -hmm. uh, what's included in that bill and how much uh, debt we're going to put on our children for the future. And it's a very expensive bill at $1.9 trillion. I read the bill last night, 590 pages that covers everything from the arts uh, to food for peace programs. And it really looks like it just took uh, all the federal programs, enhanced their budget. It needs to be more targeted. And so we need that relief. We need to enact. But uh, my message is that I would have preferred it to be done in a bipartisan way. And I think that it could be trimmed back. And I think that's... uh, important. And when Americans say uh, they want that and they support it, absolutely, because we do need that, whether it's in Texas or in Arkansas, we need it. But it's fair to bring in broader support for that. (laughs) So I have things I want to say. Brendan, what were your first impressions? Well, my, my first impressions were that he didn't actually present an alternative solution. And that was, if I misheard, you can stop me, but it seemed like that was the question right so he just said oh there's a bunch of stuff in here like the arts and we hate the arts so who's gonna spend trillions on the arts come on that's ridiculous and we're mortgaging our kids future with the debt and and but there wasn't a lot of detail on yeah it's like he took the republican talking point that this is the quote-unquote ramming it through it doesn't seem as if they're going to have republicans supporting the bill that that is the problem that there aren't Republican wishes on this bill. 
But what are those? What are those wishes? What do you want? Do you want less money for state and local? Do you want less money for unemployment? Like say what you think should be prioritized then and give the example of like, this would be fiscally conservative, but still give relief to these five populations that should be prioritized, right? Like if you were to say that, then you'd be like, oh, okay, you're a Republican governor who cares about fiscal policy, who who cares about the debt and have thought about this enough to give me concrete things that I, I supposedly should be concerned about. But he's not like, he doesn't care enough to do that. He just says it's too expensive and why, you know, they're ramming this through. Like, why should I remember anything from that interview if when given the chance to say what you want, you say nothing? Yeah, I mean, her question specifically was here, looking at the transcript, could you use the help? Exactly. And he never answers that question. Well, and he says it is urgent, but we need broader support. Well, that's going to slow it down, buddy. So, so much for urgency. So, yeah, so that was really frustrating. And, of course, Hutchinson is not the only one who does this. Like, Democrats and Republicans alike do this. But I find it so frustrating because, like, it's guaranteed the way I will forget you. <laughs> like, yeah, if you but, if you don't tell me what you actually want yeah, on the I, shows. Exactly. But on the other hand, there was an interview with Representative Ramila Jayapal. She is a Democratic congresswoman from Washington state. And... Dana Bash challenged a lot of the progressive wishes that are in the bill and just a lot of progressive priorities right now. And in one example, I thought the congresswoman did a really good job at explaining as to why the proposal to raise the income threshold for COVID relief made no sense from a policy standpoint, but also from a political one as well. I'm gonna to get to a different issue in the relief bill. President Biden suggested that he's willing to negotiate on who receives a $1,400 direct payment that is in uh, the legislation. Most Democrats are calling for a $75,000 income limit for individuals, but the president has signaled he's willing to lower that. Does that income limit need to stay at $75,000 or would you be okay with it a bit lower? It absolutely has to. Dana, if you raise those uh, income thresholds, you're going to cut out 40 million Americans who got a relief check under Donald Trump who won't get a relief check under Joe Biden. That doesn't make any political sense to me. But from a policy standpoint, if you really wanted to target these checks, you would have recent income numbers. The fact is, most people are going to be going according to 2019 incomes. And we know tens of millions of Americans lost their jobs in 2020. So these income thresholds need to stay the same. Progressives fought for that in the House, and they are the same in the House. And Mm -hmm. so I'm really pleased with that. And I believe that's going to be the case uh, in the Senate as well, because we just have people who are suffering, food banks with lines going around the block across the country. We need to get money in people's pockets, and this is the quickest way to do that. I thought that was a great reality check, questioning the premise that Americans will get more relief from Trump than from President Biden, who literally ran on helping people immediately in this crisis. Yeah, it painted a very stark picture and just kind of like solidified the question of why are you fussing with something that 
you don't need to fuss with. It was already decided on in the last bill where checks went out to people. So why is this even a question? Right. And it very clearly includes the other scenario to help you understand the rationale for keeping this in the bill, right? It's not just saying this is the right thing to do. People are suffering and and we have to do this. It's actually saying like we've already done this within another administration. Why would we not do it now? Or like it's just it's that counter factual. It's the count like it's the other side of the coin that you have to be able to say this is why we're right. And I just don't understand why this isn't (laughs) included in more discussion, especially when you're talking about legislation. It should be standard every time you go on the shows. Brendan, did you have something about politics that you wanted to share today? Yeah, basically the main thing is that most shows missed what is going on in Texas, which is crazy because it's outside of Alaska, the biggest state. And what just hit them was bigger than a hurricane and... I mean, 70 people are dead. When you think about how many people die in a hurricane or a slew of tornadoes, like as natural disasters go in the United States, this is really, really, really big. And it has direct public policy, political roots to it. It's not like something like like a slew of tornadoes that just hit and, you know, raced across and hurt a lot of people. And we cover it because... You know, it matters and it's newsy and this is a news network. And so they're going to cover it, you know, that morning. And sometimes we see that when tornadoes or or other things like that happen. That's not what this is. What this is, is like when, you know, the bridge collapsed in Minnesota, right? And, And people died. And it was, what the hell is going on with our infrastructure in America? What the hell is going on with the government that let that happen? That's the type of question that is very political, at the heart of it. And sure, you can have political questions related to regular natural disasters like they had after Hurricane Andrew, where they put in tons of standards after the 1992 hurricane hit in Florida in terms of building codes and things like that. And that was an important conversation to have as well. But this is so directly related to decisions that were made politically. And yet, the conversation was so convoluted. It was often very slapdash and extremely disappointing, and in some cases buried in the show. It wasn't at the top of the show. It wasn't the first thing discussed. And I mean, people are still suffering. 14 million people are boiling their water, if they have power and gas enough to boil water, in Texas right now. And and, and there's just like hardly a nod towards this issue. So anyway, I just want to cover a little bit of how the three shows that I looked at this week dealt with this issue and just give a quick, you know, grade and some commentary on what I think they did and what I think they did wrong, did right and wrong. So first is Meet the Press, which gets a pretty big thumbs down for their coverage this week. They had, it was literally their third segment. After Fauci, after the teachers union president, they had a report where they had a reporter stand up and talk about it. They didn't have any voices of people on the ground. It was just a reporter talking a short paragraph and they basically limited the conversation to the fact that people are don't have dr- safe drinking water now, half the state of Texas, and that they're investigating high bills. But it's like no discussion of the solution to the water issue or why this happened. No discussion of the root causes of the problem, solutions for people in dire straits right now. This is the perfect opportunity to talk about the bigger political and policy issues at the heart of the crisis. And then following that, it seemed like maybe we would have that sort of conversation. 
Chuck Todd introduced his next guest as kind of a guest to talk about Texas. And they did talk about Texas for a bit. So I'm going to include in this round of clips the introduction to that guest, as well as the three questions Chuck Todd asked, I actually should say four, related to Texas. Well, the mess in Texas caused by lax government oversight. Just the latest chapter in what's been a brutal time for the GOP, consider over the past four years, the party has lost the House, the Senate, and the White House. The split between its Trump and establishment wings is growing. It's highlighted by former President Trump calling Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell a dour, sullen, and unsmiling political hack. State and local Republican parties have censured 10 Senate and House members, uh, Republicans, who voted against Mr. Trump over the impeachment issue. All that said, it is worth remembering that the Republican Party has survived to read many of its obituaries in the past. So joining me now from San Antonio is the former Republican congressman uh, from that area, Will Hurd. Um, Will, uh, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming on. First, let me just ask you about how you and your loved ones are doing. Do you have running water and do you have power? So, okay, hold on. I got to stop it there because there was very little related to Texas in that introduction, which makes it pretty clear that Will Hurd was not really necessarily invited on to talk about what's going on in Texas. It's about Donald Trump again, which is not surprising considered they, considering they said Donald Trump's name 36 times in that episode. Here's the rest of Chuck Todd's questions to Will Hurd. Will Hurd, who, by the way, is not an energy expert, is not an expert in infrastructure, is not an expert in the history of what happened here. Anyway, here are the questions. Even though it's getting warmer, um, this, these problems are not going away. Fair to say that this was a preventable catastrophe, that this is on the Texas government? Hold on. Wait a minute. Why would you ask a former congressman whether this was a preventable catastrophe? That's a question that you, the media, with data and information and facts and research can answer very simply. And we know by the fact that this doesn't happen, that people actually live in cold places, that it is possible to have power in cold places. So that's just a ridiculous question. Now, the better question might be, why didn't the leadership of Texas politicians act responsibly to prevent this? And it's important to know the difference between those two types of questions. Anyway, let's continue. I keep stopping question by question, but I don't know. I guess that's how this is going. <laughs> okay, let's keep going. Is this a uh, black eye on the Republican Party philosophy of, of low regulation uh, and small government? Um, this was this was a black eye for not planning for this eventuality, and 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 that's and this is this has been going on for years. Uh, look, uh, when you think about this issue and you think about the place you want to uh, have in the future of the Republican Party, I mean, it does seem as if, do you think that the messaging of constantly berating government, constantly saying government is the problem, government doesn't work, does it become self-fulfilling in a place like Texas? And is that a part of the bigger messaging problem? So these last two questions actually get to an interesting issue an interesting policy issue, an interesting political issue. As Chuck Todd talks about here, the role of Republicans, their rhetoric, their goal in reducing the size of government, and if that might have had an effect on what happened here. The problem with the conversation here is twofold. Number one, the tone of the questions. Chuck Todd keeps asking these questions. He's like suggesting for example, let's take the first one. He says, is this a black eye on the Republican Party philosophy of low regulation and small government? Why ask 
a Republican that type of question. Instead, say, clearly, the Republican Party philosophy of low regulation and small government seems to have resulted in this situation. Should that philosophy change in the future, right? Don't ask him if your premise is correct, but that's what Chuck Todd keeps doing. He keeps asking if his premise is correct. He does it again later in the second question that we just heard. So that's the first problem, is just the phrasing of the questions make it really easy for the guest to just completely deny the premise rather than having to confront the premise. The second problem with this line of questioning is that there wasn't a real foundation built for the audience to understand why these questions are even relevant because they haven't talked about the facts of the case. They haven't gone deep enough into what really happened. Chuck Todd and the team has not established how the regulatory framework failed in this situation. And that's where I think it was a real miss to not have any experts on talking about this issue to lay that foundation so that you could have a deeper conversation. And now, granted, former Congressman Heard, he actually provides a little bit of that detail in his answers because he is a politician from Texas. But I think it'd be much, you'd be on much stronger ground if you had an expert do it or you had a reporter do it. So it's interesting because in the shows that I watched, Margaret Brennan interviewed two mayors. I don't remember their names off the top of my head, but it was the mayors of Houston and Fort Worth. And Dana Bash interviewed a current Texas congressman. And in all of, like, none of their interviews seemed super questionable. Of course, Margaret Brennan had, like, very great reflective, like, what How do you invest in the infrastructure? Who is responsible for that? Who is going to pay for that? And Dana Bash similarly kind of asked, what is the Republican Party going to do differently now? And I think it's just a really, really, I mean, these are not great questions for sure, but it's just bad booking overall. Like, this is not what Will Hurd is known for. He's known for being a moderate Republican who stood up to Trump. I think he has like a military background, right? And cares a lot around national security. Yeah, intelligence. I think he worked for the CIA or something. Or something like that, right. And so it's like, he's not the voice you turn to in Texas to understand energy. Like, even if you wanted a politician, there's plenty of politicians. Why don't you get like Rick Perry's chief of staff for Christ's sake or something like that? Like, there's so many other people. I don't even know Texas politics and I can probably think of three people that would probably be more appropriate. And so it's like a bad booking plus bad questions is just not great. It doesn't serve this issue very well. Okay, so briefly, I'm going to just point out what this week did. I don't have a clip for this, but... They had, at the start of their show, a report with a reporter talking about it. They did a better job, talked a little more about the total number of people who died and some of the issues that resulted from what occurred in Texas. And then Jonathan Carl opened up his interview with Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, asking about Texas, the disaster declaration, and in particular, why Biden and FEMA weren't giving aid to all Texas counties rather than just a few of the Texas counties. So that's important questions related to the response. But that's pretty much it. There wasn't a lot more in the episode about that, which I think is disappointing because there should have been. And hopefully there will be in the future. And then I really need to spotlight Fox News Sunday. 
they did the best job in their special report on what the hell happened in Texas so the audience can even understand it. Take a listen to how their reporter on the ground, Casey Stiegel, not only explains what happened in succession to lead to this crisis, but uses the voices of actual people on the ground in Texas to paint that picture. For millions, the power outages lasted for days. Days of no heat left people shivering in their homes. Then bad problems got worse. We actually noticed the water pipe broke more down that way uh, near the gym. So many pipes froze and burst, infrastructure became compromised, leading to unsafe drinking water for millions, with communities issuing boil water advisories. I've been to several different stores and no one has water. Lines quickly began forming outside stores that were open, but basic supplies were hard to find. Thank you! Which sent thousands to food banks and water distribution centers. So a really good explanation of what was happening on the ground and then going into detail or some detail at least mentioning the private agency that oversees the energy infrastructure there and the fact that it will actually cost more than 19 billion dollars in damage and then following that report chris wallace spoke with bill gates now i was a little skeptical here however bill gates literally just published a book talking about steps that governments can take to harden their infrastructure for a changing climate. So it's like, oh, well, he kind of did literally just write a book on the subject. And so there were a few questions on that topic, which seemed reasonable. So want to give Fox News Sunday kind of the, the, the somewhat gold star on that issue. I don't think any of the shows had the right amount of experts talking about this topic. And they really missed a huge opportunity to have a deep public policy discussion. I think Meet the Press wanted to have the deep discussion without doing the work of laying the foundation before that discussion. Just very interesting. The conversation is were just so different on the shows I watched about Texas. They weren't all very extensive, but they took very different angles. Anything stand out? Well, like, for instance, Margaret Brennan seemed very concerned about who was going to pay that essentially the grid needs to be weatherized, right? Because they haven't done that (laughs) because essentially the Texas power grid didn't want to be regulated by the federal government. So they created another body to do that. And they are. Yeah. Yeah. ERCOT. But because of that, they are more deregulated than most power grids and they weren't They were made to withstand Texas summers and not Texas freak winters. And Margaret Brennan asked multiple, specifically those mayors, if who was going to have to pay for that weatherization now. Right. And if it was going to be the taxpayers in Texas or not. And it was interesting, some of the responses. I think they said something about like there's a rainy day fund that might be able to cover some of these expenses, but also they might use like FEMA kind of emergency support that's coming into Texas. Like there's just all these extra infrastructure expenses and also all these exorbitant bills that customers are getting as well. And so there's all these extra costs that are really not fair, right, to the average consumer, the average resident in Texas to kind of bear the brunt. Yeah. One stat I saw was that weatherization would have cost $100 million if they had done it before this crisis. 
And now this crisis has cost them close to 20 or, or more billion dollars. Right, exactly. And they still have to weatherize. Exactly. There, I will recommend to the audience, and we'll put a link in the show notes, there's a really great piece at the top of the New York Times right now about what happened in Texas, how they got to an infrastructure the way that they have it now. It was actually something that was supported by both parties, Democrats and Republicans in Texas, to kind of privatize things. Texas has, you know, 120-year history of being very energy independent ever since kind of oil was, was struck there in, I think it's 1902. And so everyone seemed to support it. And in 1999, then-Governor George W. Bush signed into law the law that basically privatized their entire energy infrastructure. So lots of interesting, interesting things to learn that unfortunately were kind of lost to the Sunday shows. And they treated it like it was a bunch of tornadoes that came through. Right. And I I think my takeaway is that it's a hard story to do completely. So kind of do a f- brief, full explanation and then pick an angle because yeah. you're not going to be able to cover all pieces all components, all players, but pick an angle and then kind of really chase it. But I think that said, you should lay the foundation for a basic understanding of what happened. 100% that that I don't disagree with. All right, Naomi. Well, I could talk about this forever, but our show has come to show ratings. How would you rate the two shows you looked at today? I think I would give Face the Nation an eight. I thought the interviews were stellar. I mean, this is the other side of it in terms of picking an angle. Margaret Brennan picked her angle. And so it just felt like the show was very narrow, mm-hmm. <laughs> which happens like it's not. Yeah. I don't know. But it there felt like there was a lot of other news that just didn't even touch the show agenda. Well, that's interesting because I think my criticism last week was that they were all over the place. They covered too many topics. They need to stop listening to you, Brendan. <laughs> Um, And then on State of the Union, I think I would give it a seven. Pretty strong episode. There were some weak moments, but nothing too egregious. How about your shows? Man, it was just such a mixed bag on so many of them. I think Fox News Sunday, I'd put it closer to the top because of the, the quality of that coverage of Texas, as well as the interview that he had with Dr. Fauci, which was very well done. I mean, it was clear Chris Wallace did his homework, which is great. And they had no... Power Player of the Week, as if they <gasps> what? they 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 followed your recommendation from last. week. I can't yes. believe that happened on my not on my week. Yeah, so I think I'll give them an eight, and then Meet the Press. I I just felt like they really really missed the story on Texas, and thirty six times they talked about Trump, and seventeen they talked about Biden. I, I'm not okay with that. So yeah, clearly, I think I'm going to give them probably a four this week. Ooh, have we given a below five before? Have we? Sure we have. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you gave like a three or a two or something. (laughs) That sounds about right. And then I think you still have... Yes, this week. This week was also a mixed bag. Mm. Yeah, I I really was not impressed with this week either. I think maybe, maybe a six. I just wasn't impressed. I felt very fiery about these shows today. Clearly. All right. Well, sounds like you sh- if you didn't get to watch the Sunday shows and you have some time this week, Face the Nation and Fox News Sunday are the shows, and State of the Union a little bit too, are the shows to kind of put at the top of your podcast player. Absolutely. 
today on our dialogue challenge. I've got one, and it's something that I didn't have a chance to cover, but I thought it could be a theme related to empiricism, the lack of empiricism on some of these Sunday shows, and how quickly people will fall into their easy, it's almost like a a shorthand. There was a moment where Will Hurd was talking about Republicans and, you know, they need to stop telling lies and this and that. They need to focus on, you know, talking about their differences with the Democrats and how, the you know, the Democrats, you know, when they mention how the Democrats want open borders and to defund the police, then they have a much stronger case. And it's like, but no Democrats are saying that. What are you talking about? Nobody runs on opening the borders and nobody in the year 2020, not a single person on the national ballot ran on defund the police. So it's just like, what, how can you do this? It's like they're, you know how they say like people's love language is whatever, you know, oh, it's their love language is chocolate. Their love language, you know, whatever. It's not the love language. It's like gift giving. Yeah, sure. Gift giving. Acts of affirmation. Right. right. But it seems like some, it's like their love language is lies. Like the language is just lies. It's just shorthand. And Rahm Emanuel did the same thing where he just so easily fell into this like, oh, you know, what happened in Texas, it's all about climate change. It's all about climate change. And it's like, can we at least look at the data? I mean, there's a great meteorologist I follow, Daniel Swain, here on the West Coast, and he is a climate scientist. And he's like, look, the data is not in yet on this. We can't say that what happened in Texas was because of climate change. Cold spells just happen sometimes. They don't happen all the time. You still have to be responsible and prepare for that. Exactly. And that's kind of like a a cop-out to say it's, oh, it's climate change and not. Anyway, this is about empiricism. And the dialogue challenge is to just not say anything, but listen. Just listen and try to both listen to yourself and listen to others when you're making claims, when you're hearing claims, when you're hearing what sounds like the easy language that people throw out all the time, whether it's climate change on one side or whether it's open borders on the other side. Like, what are these words? What is the empirical data behind them? Is it really true? So just listen. That's what I say. Just listen. That's my that's my dialogue. Very interesting. Well, if you want to share with us something you've heard, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bstyle, and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.